Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, but today, of course, we are absolutely delighted to welcome back Dahlia Schweitzer. Um, she's a pop culture critic and writer. Vogue calls her sexy, rebellious, and cool. And I agree. Um, she's written three novels. She's produced two, uh, released two albums. Um, and her work manages to be in-depth and accessible in just a very engaging way. It's refreshing. It's nice. But you get so many ideas. Um, her latest... Um, oh, I was going to say, um, I really did... Um, I loved her previous book, Cindy Sherman's Office Killer. If you haven't uh, read it yet, it's so good. Um, her latest, though, today is uh, Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World. Um, the book has gotten such good reviews. It has been called deep, penetrating, provocative, menacing, incisive, expertly informed, vital, engaging, concise, alluring, elegant, rich, clever, transdisciplinary, utterly approachable, full of knowledge and wit, and a joy to read. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Hi. So I'm doing something a little bit unconventional today, um, in that I'm not doing an actual reading. Um, I was kind of looking through the book and trying to figure out what excerpt would lend itself well to this kind of, you know, 20 minute short and sweet sort of presentation. And I felt like that wouldn't really work for this kind of topic. So what I'm going to do instead is going to give you like a little bit of a lecture that's sort of Outbreak Narratives 101 that would then be kind of like the introductory cliff notes to the book. So hopefully it would whet your appetite, so then you would want to go on and read more in the book. Um, so I will not be reading so much as talking directly to you about the book and the main ideas that I explore in the book. And then after I finish talking, we'll have a Q&A where you can ask me whatever you want about this book, the previous book, whatever you want. Okay, so what is an outbreak narrative? So an outbreak narrative begins with the discovery of some kind of an emerging infection. It follows it as it spreads, so the virus can spread through a town, through a country, through the world, and it documents the journey to try to contain or neutralize whatever the virus might be. That's the basic template. Outbreak narratives are very interesting for me to study because within that really basic template, there's so much going on that really says a lot about our sort of contemporary society and all these things that are happening off screen, not just on screen. So when you start to study outbreak narratives, you get to see a couple different things that we're increasingly anxious about off screen. So one of the anxieties that you see in the outbreak narrative is anxieties between the personal body, that's my body, and the body politic in the, in that, in the nation, right? So it's a conflict between you and the nation. You feel like you know, your nation isn't going to protect you if you get sick. Another anxiety that plays up in the outbreak narrative is between individual nations. And so you see this, if there's an outbreak in Africa, we don't want Africans coming into the US. So it's a conflict of national boundaries. 
Also, another really interesting anxiety that you see play out is between ordinary, aka uninfected people, and infected people, right? So if I'm healthy, but you have Ebola, I'm gonna stay far away from you because you're dangerous, you might infect me, you might kill me. So these three different kinds of anxieties make up the outbreak narrative. And then what's fascinating is, of course, the outbreak narrative shows up, in my book, in film and television, where it's not for a public service, it's there to make money. So the idea behind it is that these anxieties are being commodified in order to prey on your fears so that you sell, so that you buy um, tickets to the movies, so that you click on the article in the newspaper, etc. So these outbreak narratives feed into narratives that are intentionally being constructed by government organizations, journalists, and Hollywood, sometimes working together, sometimes not, but it's kind of like the trio of um, groups that are spreading the information in order to fuel this ever-expanding relationship between fear, power, and money. When did we become interested in the outbreak narrative? So the outbreak narrative really kind of emerged as a phenomenon in the mid-1990s, and there were a couple different reasons why it emerged. It didn't just come out of nowhere. So one was, of course, the growing fear of viral outbreaks as a result of HIV, which made people realize, oh my god, viral outbreaks are still a thing. And then another um, component was efforts of scientists and doctors to draw attention intentionally to emerging diseases during the 1990s and beyond. Now you can speculate about why you think they wanted to do that, if they wanted to increase their funding and get more resources, or if it was for the good of humanity, you can decide. The third uh, very important strategic thing is the increasing pervasion into our lives of media, right? So now it's like you hear that someone's got Ebola, that there's an outbreak, and suddenly it's all over Facebook, it's all over Twitter, everyone's freaking out, oh my god, there's a doctor who went bowling, he had Ebola, and it's panic. So, 1995 is really the year when the outbreak narrative template was launched. And it's really fascinating to kind of examine the fact that all four of these things came out in 1995. So we have the movie Outbreak, we have an episode of The X-Files in which there is an outbreak. We have a TV movie called Formula for Death. And we have the movie version of The Twelve Monkeys. All right, so all these things came out in 1995. And if you know anything about production, production takes a while. So if all these come out in 1995, that means they've already been in the mix for at least a few years. So why? Why would all these random Hollywood producers and writers suddenly start thinking about Ebola, right? Why is 1995 suddenly the year that Ebola exploded on the big screen? So we're going to take a step back because nothing is coincidental. So in 1960s, just to give you some background, infectious disease was seen as such a declining specialty that medical students were actually told it was a waste of time to pursue it, that they should respond, they should look at um, you know, more like real diseases, like heart disease and cancer and diabetes and like infectious diseases, like we, you know, we, it was no longer an issue, don't waste your time. In 1989, this guy named Stephen S. Morse chaired a conference on emerging diseases. Remember his name, he's gonna come back. In 1991, the National Academy of Sciences put together a committee to study the effects of globalization on health and national security. And they took this Stephen Morse and they took Joshua Lederberg and they put together a committee to do an, an analysis on how globalization was affecting American health and security. So that's 1991. 
1992, in The New Yorker, Richard Preston publishes an article that's called Crisis in the Hot Zone, which was the true story of an Ebola outbreak in Reston, Virginia. The Ebola outbreak in Reston, Virginia was very scary for one reason, which was that Ebola, in that, that version of Ebola was aerosolized. That meant you could breathe it in and you could get infected. All right. The lucky thing was it only infected monkeys. All right. So it was really scary because it was like, oh my god, what if there was a strain that was aerosolized but it could affect people? But that didn't happen. But still, people were you know, very freaked out by this article in 1992. Now, this article didn't come out of nowhere. Richard Preston was told by Joshua Lederberg about what had happened in Reston, Virginia, and Joshua Lederberg wanted him to write this article. Even though Joshua Lederberg isn't mentioned in the article per se, our friend Stephen Morse is mentioned, and Richard Preston at the end of the article, just for like a little, you know, happy closure, asks um, Stephen Morse if an emergent virus could wipe out our species. And Stephen Morse, ever the optimist, said, oh yeah, HIV could do it, and all we'd need is an aerosolized version of HIV, which is totally likely, and it will circle the globe in a flash, and it will kill one in three people on Earth. And that was how the New Yorker article ended. <laughs> in 1993, our same friend, Stephen Morse, published a book called Emerging Viruses that became selected as one of the top science books of the 20th century. In 1994, our friend Joshua Lederberg testified to the U.S. Senate about viral outbreaks, and he said, quote, the microbe which felled one child in a distant continent yesterday can reach your child today and seed a global pandemic tomorrow. That's what he told the Senate. And just to clarify, if you have watched the movie Outbreak, Joshua Lederberg is the one who has the opening quote before the movie starts, where he says, the single biggest threat to man's continued dominance on the planet is a virus. So they're cheerful people. So in 1994, Lori Garrett, who is a science journalist, sees what's going on, wants to get on the bandwagon, and she publishes this book, The, uh, the Coming Plague, and if you, I don't know if you can read the small text, but it says, Newly Emerging Diseases in a World Out of Balance. Um, and this book would be a bestseller for 19 weeks, um, and she did very well with it, and her goal had been to publish this book before this book came out, and this book is the expanded version of what Richard Preston wrote about in that New Yorker article. So after that New Yorker article published, he got a book deal and he got a movie deal. And Lori Garrett heard about this and she was like, oh my God, my book's gotta come out first. So The Hot Zone sold 3.5 million copies. Now The Hot Zone, again, which tells a story about this Ebola outbreak that happened in Western Virginia, and it says all these like horrifying things about Ebola. Now, of course, some scientists said, wait a second, this isn't true. And he, Richard Preston talks about how like Ebola liquefies organs, for instance. Ebola does not liquefy organs. But people didn't care, they read the book, it was a bestseller, and it really shaped our fears of Ebola. As if perfectly choreographed timing, there is a real life outbreak in 1995 of Ebola in Zaire. So all these events happened as if by clockwork to really create the moment for the outbreak narrative to emerge. And this is a sample um, magazine cover from that time period. It says, killer virus beyond the Ebola scare. What else is out there? And then 
just to really kind of hit home, this is annual coverage of emerging diseases by the three leading U.S. television networks. So it starts off with 1989 with zero stories of emerging diseases, and you can see it slowly goes up and slowly goes up, and then between 1993 and 1994, skyrockets, and then between 1994 and 1995, it skyrockets some more. So just to recap, in 1995, not only do you have this much coverage in the news, but you have all these movies and TV shows that are playing out the same basic story, oh my god, there's an Ebola outbreak or an Ebola-esque outbreak. So obviously, people are scared because this is the information that's bombarding them. At the same time that the outbreak narrative is scary, we also enjoy it, right? It, it appeals to us on kind of a visceral level. So why do we enjoy the outbreak narrative? Why, why is it so popular, right? There's a reason why we keep making the same story over and over again. So one of the things that's fascinating about the outbreak narrative is the way that it manifests disease and information vectors. So it portrays how the disease spreads and you will inevitably have uh, like a diagram where it's like, oh, Jack gave it to Susan, and then Susan, Susan gave it to Billy and Bob, and then Billy and Bob, etc., etc. So there's a certain pleasure that comes from watching how our social interactions spread disease, and then we also can see how information vectors spread information about the disease and obviously panic. Uh, the outbreak narrative also, really tellingly and disturbingly, simplifies moral ambiguities, right? So it allows us to be racist in a way that doesn't feel like it's racist because, oh, but they're gonna make us sick. It's not that they, we don't like them because of the color of their skin, it's we don't like them because they're gonna make us sick. So one of the things that's interesting to trace with the outbreak narrative is who that dangerous other is. So when the outbreak narrative first began, it was primarily Africa. Right? And so the virus was always coming out of Africa and it was affecting the good white people of America who otherwise would have lived forever. Then it shifts to Asia and suddenly Asia is the scary other that is spreading the virus through its you know, dirty hygiene practices and whatnot. And then after 9-11, you kind of had a wave where it became popular for the terrorists to come from the Middle East spreading virus with them. So the other, the menacing other, has alternately been Africa, Asia, Middle East, and the virus always travels from there to here. It's never America affecting the poor people in Africa or America affecting the poor people in Asia. Viral outbreaks are also fascinating because of the way that they collapse time and space, right? So for instance, everyone feels fairly comfortable right now, but if I told you that the person sitting next to you had Ebola, you'd suddenly feel a little bit claustrophobic. Ebola does that on a global scale, right? So you find out that there's an Ebola outbreak in San Diego, and suddenly San Diego feels a little too close to LA. So outbreaks are really good at kind of making things come together, and things happen really fast, right, in an outbreak, because suddenly it's like, oh my god, it's been 12 hours and we've had 20 deaths or whatever. So what's very crucial for the outbreak narrative is understanding this kind of simultaneity that plays a key role in the outbreak narrative. So one is a simultaneity in viral spread, and this is played out through globalization in that a virus from China is a virus and London is a virus in New York seemingly overnight, right? We don't have any more kind of barriers of that country's over there and this country's over here. 
Um, it also plays out with this simultaneity and information spread in that as soon as there's an outbreak in China, you're going to hear about it in London. You're going to hear about it in New York. Okay, so you have this simultaneity of viral spread and information. Um, also, what's very important to understand is the fear of a viral infection is different than a fear of being hit by a car or um, being shot in a shooting, right? So the idea behind contagion is that there's nothing you can do to protect yourself, right? You can stay home in a bunker, and if it's an aerosolized thing, you're still going to get it, right? There's nothing that you can do. You have to go to the hospital, you get it. Um, also, they're not limited to a particular demographic or geographic area. So you can't think like, oh, well, I'm living in Montana, therefore I'm never going to get sick, right? There's no way to properly escape from a virus geographically. So that creates a whole different level of anxiety. All right. So the outbreak narrative, as I discuss in my book, is a film cycle, which I'm assuming probably many of you are not as familiar with. You're probably more familiar with the concept of a film genre. So a film genre is like drama, comedy, western, where you have these rules that really stay the same for decade after decade after decade. So a romantic comedy from 1935 isn't going to be that different than a romantic comedy from 1995. It's the same basic plot line, right? With film cycles, they only really last five or ten years before they have to get updated, okay? Because they're much more keyed in to current events. So they're only financially viable for about five to ten years, and then you have to change them up somehow. And usually the way that they get changed up is you play between dominant and subordinate traits. So maybe there's like a minor thing in one version, and then five years later that minor thing becomes a major thing, right? So it's just a way of kind of keeping them current and keeping them relevant. So in my book, I talk about three main different kinds of outbreak narratives. One is the globalization outbreak narrative, and that's the narrative that really plays on fears exacerbated by globalization. So this idea that our world is so interconnected, that we're suddenly closer than everything everybody was before, and so someone in Africa can get on a plane and bring us the virus. The other kind of outbreak narrative that I talk about in the book is the terrorist outbreak narrative, and that became much more common after 9-11, and that's when you got the idea of a terrorist intentionally spreading the virus as a, you know, to further some kind of nefarious agenda. The third and final kind of outbreak narrative that I talk about in the book is the post-apocalypse outbreak narrative. And that's what's really common now, and those are the narratives where the virus has already happened, and now we're kind of looking at the aftermath. So just to kind of start, the globalization outbreak narrative can be seen in movies like Outbreak or Contagion, where you really get a sense of how the virus travels from one country to the next. In the terrorist outbreak narrative, which you can see in many TV shows and some movies, is again where the virus is spread by a terrorist and you have to stop the terrorist because the terrorist has some kind of an agenda or they're holding people hostage or whatever. Um, and then after 9-11, they really started playing on the idea that terrorism is also a contagion in that terrorism doesn't respect boundaries, right? That's why terrorist attacks are so deeply upsetting because you never thought there'd be a terrorist attack in a supermarket, in a church, or whatever. Just like you never thought that there would be a viral outbreak in San Diego. Um, the terrorist outbreaks really play on the notion that it's hard to tell who's going to hurt you. Because they might look healthy, they might look normal, but they're infected, they're going to kill you. 
Um, and so obvious signifiers such as race or gender or language or nationality do not really help out, right? So like if you've got an infectious disease and you're gonna kill me, I can't tell by looking at you that that's what's gonna happen. Um, and so that in these narratives, you really get the notion of the body as a weapon. And one popular plot point that you see over and over again is the terrorist infects themselves with a virus and then they go out into the world spreading the virus in their wake. In the movie Global Effect, for instance, a woman infects herself with the virus, goes on a date with the head doctor at a hospital, obviously infects him, and boom, everyone in the hospital is infected. In the post-apocalypse outbreak narrative, you very frequently have zombies, right? And there's the connection between zombies and infection. And you also have metaphorical zombies, as in the movie Blindness. So the idea is these people become infected and are stripped of their humanity on either a literal or a metaphorical level. Um, and you can see examples of this in movies like 28 Days Later, I'm Legend, World War Z, Blindness, and you also see it in TV shows like The Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead, and The Last Man on Earth. So, why do zombies matter? Why are we still talking about them? Because you keep thinking, like, isn't this passe yet? So zombies are really interesting because they're really keyed in with what's going on off screen. So Robert Kirkman, creator of The Walking Dead, said, apocalyptic storytelling is appealing when people have apocalyptic thoughts. With the global economic problems and everything else, a lot of people feel we're heading into dark times. As bad as it is for society, I'm benefiting greatly. <laughs> um, this is a really great chart, I don't know how well you can see it, but it shows you um, different kinds of world events and how every time there's some kind of a traumatic event, there's a rise in zombie movies. So like during the Iraq war, there's a huge rise in zombie movies. During the global recession in the early 1990s, there's a huge rise. During the AIDS epidemic, there's a rise. So it's not coincidental that zombie narratives are very popular right now. It reflects what's going on off screen. Um, so zombies reflect fears of terrorism, they reflect fears of social collapse, economic recession, fears of globalization and illicit border crossings, and we see that playing out right now in the political field, where it's like, oh my god, we can't let in any immigrants, everybody in Haiti has AIDS. It's that same kind of idea. Um, and it also caters to this fantasy that in the post-apocalyptic world, life will actually be better because we'll be liberated from all the nonsense that clogs up our lives now. So suddenly we don't have to worry about our mortgage or a credit card bill or our student loans or going to Trader Joe's. We're worrying about how to survive. <laughs> um, and then what's interesting is starting with the movie 28 Days Later, the zombie narrative became integrally um, connected with fears of infection, right? And that's when you started to get the zombie who had a virus or who would spread um, the zombie virus. And another thing that plays out with these narratives, these sort of post-apocalyptic narratives, is that we are actually curious to see what the end of the world is going to look like because some days we feel like that's going to happen really soon, right? So we want to know what it's going to look like because we feel like that's going to happen to us in our lifetime. The viral human is also confusing, is also interesting because of the way it confuses distinctions between human and monster living and dead. So the zombie kind of literalizes the metaphor that when someone is sick, they're less than human, right? So it's like somebody has AIDS, they're less than human, just let them die, right? And so with the zombie, they're less than human, we can just kill them. Um, so they're really blurring these ideas of human and monster living and dead. 
Um, and this is uh, another quote from The Walking Dead where Rick says, you know that when we die, we become them. You think we hide behind walls to protect us from the walking dead. Don't you get it? We are the walking dead. So one of the major themes of that TV show is the fact that the zombies really aren't that different from us, right? That there's kind of a lot of similarities. And you see that in movies like Shaun of the Dead, for instance. The joke becomes the fact that we are already zombies. Um, the TV show iZombie plays on this notion that people among us that look like human beings are actually zombies. So it kind of plays on this idea, much like someone could have HIV and be around us and we wouldn't know. Um, and iZombie is really fascinating because they really compare the zombie virus to HIV. And over and over again, you'll get these comparisons. Um, and Rob Thomas, the guy who created the show, has talked about the fact that that was, that was an intentional thing developed in the um, writing room, was to make the zombie virus synonymous with living with AIDS. So one fundamental question to kind of leave you with is, do we become better people when the world ends? So in TV shows like The Walking Dead, there's this kind of glamorized notion that yeah, the world as we know it is gone, the world of commerce and frivolous necessity has been replaced by a world of survival and responsibility. In a matter of months, society has crumbled, no government, no grocery stores, no mail delivery, no cable TV. In a world ruled by the dead, we are forced to finally start living. So this is a huge reason for the popularity of shows like The Walking Dead, that it's like, yeah, we can be real men again. <laughs> but then, there's also the question of, do we become monsters? So, I'm going to leave you with that. <laughs> Anybody have questions? <laughs> yes, Dave. What's your favorite zombie movie? Uh, my favorite zombie movie is Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead. Love that one. Any other uh, questions? Yeah. How long has this baby been making that you created here? I started researching it in the fall of 2013. I'm going to close this. Um, when I first started researching it, I had no idea if there was even going to be anything there. It was more, my previous book, which talks about a movie that came out in 1997, looks at how that movie plays up on this notion of intimacy as being deadly. And in that movie, they never talk about AIDS, but Gary has a cold, and Gary's always told, not to spread his cold, and don't catch Gary's cold, and anybody who's physically intimate in that movie dies. So it's pretty clear to, to me that that's kind of what's going on, even if it's on a subconscious level. Um, and I'm someone who grew up at a time period where I never separated AIDS from sex. It was like I didn't know sex before there was AIDS. Um, and so I kind of started to think about, like, well, how does that show up on movie and television narratives, this notion that, like, intimacy is dangerous and intimacy can kill you? Um, and so it kind of just started with that sort of question. Yeah? Uh, I, I really liked your focus on the 1990s, you know, going back from 1995. Yeah. That was very effective, I thought. But I, I did wonder how you square that with uh, the George Romero 
trilogy that really dates to 68 and goes through the 70s and the early 80s. Because those zombies weren't about infection. The zombies came from outer space. <laughs> so they, they are in a certain way about infection because if they bite you, right. they turn into a zombie. But you don't, Isn't sorry. that infection? You don't have the overt comparisons to the zombie virus. And the zombie, it doesn't, like in 28 days later, it comes out of the lab, right? Whereas in Night of the Living Dead, it comes from outer space. And so that's what's interesting. So like if you, one of the things I talk about in my book is the Andromeda strain, which came out at that time, around that same time period, 1971, where again, the virus comes from outer space. So it's in, 1990, in the early 1990s that we really start getting the virus coming from Africa. But I address that in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of follow up on that. Uh, George Romero mm -hmm. was revered by Marxist con film critics, nearly even for Don of the Dead. Mm -hmm. And do you see, you know, in, the, in these current narratives, any themes having to do with the predatory capitalists? A hundred percent. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, so he was asking um, if predatory capitalism was still playing a role in current zombie narratives. Um, and absolutely. Uh, in my book, I talk at length about an episode of SpongeBob SquarePants, where it talks exactly about that, where at the end of the movie, at the end of the, the show, there's a guy who is working behind a cash register, and he's kind of like going like this, and I, SpongeBob is like, what's going on? You're not a zombie. And he's like, I have always been a zombie, or something like that. And then in Shaun of the Dead, that the brilliant opening sequence in that movie keeps showing us ordinary people doing ordinary things, and they look like zombies. Because for instance, they're working in a Walmart-type store, and so they're just kind of swiping the things through. So yeah, it's still a major component in zombie narratives. Yeah? Um, so that quote from Rick, I, I really focused on that. I, I, I was interested in this philosophically. Mm -hmm. I thought, what, what philosophy matters when it's the end of the world? And then I started seeing these post-apocalyptic world-making scenarios gone. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of this idea that, okay, we're already, it's already the end of the world. Right. And then they start making these worlds up. I mean, what do you think of that? I mean, how do you feel about that? Two things. One, just to go back to what you were saying, I think the anti-capitalism also shows up in narratives like The Walking Dead, where again, as Robert Kirkman is saying, we're finally able to start living when we don't have mortgages and cable TV and all kinds of capitalistic nonsense. So the anti-capitalism is still a huge thread in modern zombie narratives. And then to go to what you were saying, what's interesting is I don't think it's world building. Like it's not like a typical science fiction movie where there's some kind of an alternate reality. Like in The Last Man on Earth, they're living in our neighborhoods that are already built now. They're just deserted because everybody's dead. And in The Walking Dead, it's also, it's every day, it's a world that we used to live in, just everybody's dead. And you would think because it's so smart about its, its call on capitalism, mm -hmm. they would try to do something. And that's, I guess, where... Try to do something like what? You know, I mean the social utopia and try to oh, build something. They do have that. I think it's in... I get the mall blur. I think it's season five. Do we have any Walking Dead fans? In here? I well, so what's the season where there is, there is that utopia? Oh, that's right. Well, it, it seems like it's, it's always bridging on that. Yeah. But then they, they all, then they start a war, or they, you know, they. Well, the problem is they get attacked by zombies because they've been too busy living in their utopia to protect themselves. So 
in that season, you do have this kind of alternate reality play out. But I think in all the other seasons, it's very much like making do with the remnants of whatever's left. Yeah, it does seem like a war on government on how we're going to govern ourselves. And that's what's really interesting, I think. Yes, and I think that some people think because of these zombie narratives are using lots of guns, that they must be pro kind of patriarchy and order and all that, you know, conservative government. But they're really not. They're like, they're all of them are highly critical of absolute power. Um, the Last Ship, which is another TV show that's on TNT, um, there's an entire plot line where the woman who has kind of appointed herself head of, uh, I believe it's Baltimore, is literally choosing which people get to survive. And the people that aren't smart enough, you know, aren't you know going to be good procreators or whatever, literally get killed to fuel the city for the other people that she has selected. So you really have this very negative point of view of sort of like, you know, how we can become this kind of evil capitalistic society. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.